I don't know why this is, but I am such a sucker for those articles online, best places to live. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think because I click on them, they just keep coming my way, but top places to live in the world, top places to live in the US. I like clicking on those. I like reading those articles. I'm always curious about the small towns and the cities and the rural areas that get ranked as the top places to live. And the UN does this every year globally. So like on planet Earth, around the world, the UN has some criteria for determining what is the best place to live. Do you know what it was in 2021? Not Denver. Do you want to guess? Anybody else? Any other guesses? Norway. Correct. Yes. Norway was the number one place and the number two place. Any guesses? Kenosha, Wisconsin. Nice. <laughs> no. It was actually Ireland. Ireland. So number one was Norway. Number two was Ireland. And Number three, Switzerland. So that's what the UN said in 2021 um, for the best place to live in the world. But there's other uh, groups that do this too. So Money Magazine does it. And their criteria is a little bit different. They are looking, asking that same question, but they're looking at towns and cities in the US. And so do you want to guess what they said this past year was the top town, the top place in the US? Not Aurora, no. The top place they said, I said it wrong in the first service, Chanhassen, Minnesota. The, se <laughs> the second place, uh, Carmel, Indiana. I've not been there either. Uh, the third place, Franklin, Tennessee. Okay. Someone has been there and knows the place. <laughs> so th that's what they ranked. But, you know, it's interesting because each time um, these come up, each group has criteria. They have criteria for determining the places that win. Things like, you know, j j the job growth in that area is rising. The home prices are affordable. The factors that contribute to quality of life really shine. So they have different criteria. The UN... When the UN is determining like best place in the world to live, they have three basic criteria that they use to determine this, uh, the world's best countries to live in. It's life expectancy, educational level, and annual uh, income. So life expectancy, educational level, and annual income is what the UN uses as criteria. So in other words, it's the countries who have people who live the longest, know the most and earn the most that win for the UN. But each group has different criteria. Uh, Money Magazine, Forbes, they also have this. The Forbes Magazine does this, attempts to assess it. Uh, where is the best place to live? It's such a simple question, and yet undergirding it is a complex set of factors that have to do with the you know, economics, the politics, the cultural institutions of that particular area. Um, for Money Magazine, it has a lot to do with leisure activities, you know, how many golf courses are there. It has to do with the quality of the air, the quality of the water, the density of the traffic, factors like that. But when I'm reading these, and I'm always drawn to them, I love reading them, I love clicking through and seeing the pictures and stuff, it always reminds me of the, the temptation, the tendency in me to just believe like 
the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Like, oh, if you just live there in the best place to live, that would be. But of course, we all know the grass, the grass is only greener where you water it. And we have that tendency as humans to kind of, you know, look to that other place. We can expend a lot of time and energy uh, rearranging all of the furniture on the deck of the ship that is my life, rearranging that, changing that. And sometimes that can be a huge distraction to sort of the internal moves that need to happen inside of me. And so sometimes what can happen is I can put all my energy into that and thinking about that or, or making that a reality when really there's some moves inside of me perhaps that need to happen because here's the thing, wherever you live, you take yourself there. Wherever you are, you bring you <laughs> with you. When you have what we're going to call this morning interior freedom, when you have interior freedom, you can live anywhere and thrive. But if you don't have interior freedom, you won't be content for long anyway. And this just got me thinking, like, what are God's criteria for the best place to live? If we were to just go through the lens of the ancient wisdom of the scriptures, what would the Bible say is the best place to live? So today we're going to talk about the best place to live, not from the standard set by the UN or Forbes magazine or Money magazine, but according to the ancient wisdom of God and scripture. So our criteria today, our grid, is questions like this. Where do you become most you? With the least amount of masks, with the fewest amount of postures and positions to impress, where do you become most you? Where do you find, you know, where are those places where you find greatest joy, greatest peace, where you're growing in wisdom? Where is that place? You know, where do we experience a deep sense of belonging? Where is that? Where is it that you feel simultaneously safe, but also an incredible sense of adventure, both? Where do true riches reside? And our scripture passage from today is one that will sound familiar to you if you have ever been to a wedding, because they're often, this passage is often used at weddings. But our scripture passage comes from 1 Corinthians 13, where we read this. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we only, we know only in part. We prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I, was, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. The ancient wisdom of the scriptures would tell us that the best place on earth to live is in the house of love, which can be anywhere you are. The best place to live would be in God, who is love, in love. You can move to the best place, according to Forbes, but if you do not live in the house of love there, according to this passage, you've gained nothing. And on the flip side, you might be called to go live in the slums, the worst place on earth from Money Magazine's point of view. But if you live in the house of love there, you will be rich according to our text. See, that the house of love, love, a life of love, it does have some enemies, for sure. Like an obvious one is hatred. We all know that. But perhaps more common are some of the other enemies of love, like fear, like control. Like, just imagine if one day you are driving down Colorado Boulevard as our children's uh, church director was doing recently. Let's say you're driving down Colorado Boulevard, and you, some pe you see some people standing outside King's, King's Coopers, and they're holding some signs. And you have this little sense, this little nudge, this little whisper that seems like God's spirit, saying, you should really pull over and, and go talk to that person who, who seems really down. Let's say you have that thought as you're driving, and then you say to yourself quickly after, oh, they probably don't want to talk to me. In fact, they're probably going to reject me, blow me off, or ooh, worse, they're going to chew me out. Do you know what just happened? Fear became the enemy of love. Or let's say you and your partner are sensing that maybe God is asking you to, like, grow your family via adoption or foster care. And you're sort of like, hmm, maybe, maybe, and you're leaning into that. 
But then you start to think like, oh, you're talking to friends, you're reading books, you're like, oh, there's going to be a chunk of this child's life that I have no control over. There's going to be this whole thing before me that I didn't have any say in. And possibly and and likely there's going to be some attachment things for this child that I'm going to enter into probably for a lifetime. And do you know what just happened? Control became the enemy of love. There's lots of enemies to our living in the house of love, living a life of love. There, there is an enemy to love that's probably more uh, lethal than fear, even hatred, even control. We rarely consider it, but it's power. You know, our lust for power, it just goes against our need to be loved and our need to love. You could say it this way. The person who has a lot of power and control often loves less. And here is why. Love makes us vulnerable. Love renders you weak. Love exposes your heart to heartbreak. That is what love does. When you love, you expose your heart to heartbreak. And if you are only and always about more power, you will talk yourself out of that every time. See, because to really love, it's to diminish your own control. Love makes you feel powerless. And we often feel this, but we don't often really acknowledge or or analyze this related to power. it's, It's something we deeply feel, but but it causes us to avoid living in that house. Why? Because to to love is to be vulnerable. It is to enter risk. It is to expose ourselves to pain. And some of you right now, like, you feel really vulnerable, and you feel really heartbroken, and maybe that is because you have done exactly that, chose to love. To love is to be vulnerable. We're exposing ourselves to pain. That's why we sometimes want to avoid it in order to maintain a a sense of control and a sense of personal power. But here's the thing. The the Christian story, the story of following God in the way of Jesus, Jesus is inviting us into a story of a different kind of power. It is a life of living with with a certain kind of power, but it's a different kind of power completely upside down from the way of the world, completely upside down from the way we think about it. It's a power that actually leads to an interior freedom. It's the kind of power that comes into our lives and gives us an interior freedom where we can literally be anywhere and able to love and able to thrive because you know what? In that space inside, it's like fully known, fully loved, no fear of rejection, nothing to lose. I am willing to be exposed. I am willing to be vulnerable. I am willing to risk. I am willing to have my heart broken. What is that interior freedom that allows us? How do we how do we grow in that? How do we become the kind of people who actually are so free on the inside we could live anywhere? 
put me anywhere and I can thrive. Because this work inside of me has become so deep and true and real. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Platte Park or Parker or Calcutta or anywhere else on the globe. Because I'm living in the house of love wherever I am. How do we do that? How do we gain that? Well, we're going to really quick cruise through four, like, kind of theological concepts that I think give us the map for interior freedom and living in the best place, the house of love. So I'm going to say the first part of this phrase. I want to invite you to say the second part. So the first one is the power of God's incarnation, which is, you say it, God with us. Okay, the power of Christ's resurrection, which is what? God for us. The power of the Spirit's sanctification. We'll talk about that in a minute. What is that? God in us. And the power of God's vocation, which is God through us. So we're going to just cruise through these quick. Philippians 2 says about Christ, though being in very nature God, he became a man took on the very nature of a servant. And that, that's the essence of the incarnation. Christ became fragile, became earthbound, became vulnerable, became a human. He stepped into human skin. He moved into the neighborhood is how Eugene Peterson phrased it. He entered into human smallness. The infinite became fragile. God is with us, one of us. But here's the problem with the incarnation. It is very easy to be like, yeah, Jesus lived, sure, became human 2,000 years ago, 5,000 miles away. His scope of people he knew was close people. It was probably like 20 people. So the reality of the incarnation, like the reality of God with me today, what's the reality of that? It happened 2,000 years ago, 5,000 miles away, there's been like millions of people who have followed Christ who have died <laughs> since then. But how, how can the reality of God with me, the reality of the incarnation, how does that work today? What does it mean to say God is with us when we can't see him? We can't touch him anymore. We can't talk with him face to face. What does the incarnation mean if there's no God in the flesh here and now? Well, the scriptures answer this, and they say that God becomes present to us through love. So in 1 John 4, we read this, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. No one has seen God, but... If we love one another, God lives in us. His love is made complete in us. How do we actually experience the power, the reality of the incarnation? It's through love. Quick story um, about me. So, you know, I mean, like everybody, sometimes I get discouraged, feel an internal um, discouragement inside and Sometimes it happens right before big days around here, you know, like a lot of pressure. Oh, Easter's coming, Christmas is coming, whatever. And Easter 2020, we had gone online only. Pandemic had just start started. The whole world was right. We were all crazy. I, and um, 
I, we were not even home when this happened, but Big Bob from this community, you guys, he came to our house with like 60-some plastic Easter eggs packed with candy for my kids. And side note, you know, like, as like a mom pastor, I always feel super guilty on Easter because it's like, you know, I shove the kids on screens and we're not doing any of the fun. So he comes with the like 60, you know what he does? He just like stands in the alley and hurls them over our fence. That, that is the Easter mansion. Like, no one has seen God, but if we love one another, when you love, like Big Bob did that day, you do experience God with you. That's how it works. We love because God first loved, loved us. And now, I was thinking, like, some of you might be sitting here, and you might be thinking to yourself, like, well, if someone would love me like that, then God would become real to me. I want to say to you, you go love somebody like that. Like, you go find a way to hurl 60 candy-filled eggs in somebody's backyard or the equivalent. And God will become real to you because the power of the incarnation, God with us, it comes to us through love. That's how it works. Another way we live in the house of love, another way we obtain that interior freedom is through the power of Christ's resurrection. And what is that again? God for us. Okay, the resurrection, of course, we know it's the event in the, that validates the entire gospel story. Like if Christ is not risen, Paul says we've believed in vain. So let's say, though, for a moment, you believe the resurrection is true. It happened. Awesome. We celebrated at Easter. How does it become real in you? The power of it. How does it become a personal living reality in you. And, and once again, the scriptures will say it's through love. John 3, 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love each other. Like it is when we love deeply that we actually experience, oh, I'm not, I'm not just born, live, die, end of story. When you hold that newborn baby in your arms, you go, oh, eternity is said in our hearts. When you go and care for someone, end of life, man, those thin space moments, those are the moments we go, those are the transcendent times in which you realize, oh, there is more to this story. We know we've passed from death to life when, when we love each other. And then third, another way we live in this house of love, another way we obtain interior freedom that allows us to live anywhere physically because remember where we really live? In our minds and in our hearts. That's where we really live. And that's why you get these most inspiring stories of people in the worst of circumstances who say like, this, is, this, concentration, <laughs> this concentration camp is not my home. That's not where I live. This prison is not where I live. This is where I live. This is where I live, right? When you can obtain a sort of interior freedom 
in God. You can have any life and thrive because it's not about those external markers anymore. It is not about where I live and who I know and what I have and what I do. It, it's not about that. It's about God is, is, God is with me and God is for me and God is in me and God wants to work through me. It's just a whole nother story. It's a whole nother reality. It's not dependent on my circumstances. There are really, when we talk about this, this word sanctification, you know, theological word, which is what again? God in us. Um, you know, we're really talking about growing in Christ-like character because for all followers of God in the way of Jesus, there are like two realities. We've got conversion, you've got sanctification, right? So conversion is that moment, blink of the eye, snap of, I mean, the moment that you turn towards God, God runs towards you, welcome home, right? That's conversion. It's going, I once was walking in darkness, now I'm walking in light. It is dead to sin, alive in Christ. It's that that's conversion. And equally important for followers of Christ is sanctification, growing in Christ-like character. What is that? Day by day, moment by moment, step by step. It's plodding along in good times and bad, in joy and in sadness, in your youth and in your decrepitude-ness. When you start to decline, it's all the seasons. It's in every season, plodding along, growing in Christ-like character, letting whatever has happened allow you to become more like him. I heard this really uh, fun story. It's actually a story about Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth, and they were driving one time, apparently, and there was a bunch of construction on the highway. So there are all these signs. It was like super slow down and going really slow, just creeping along. And after quite some time, the construction ended, and this sign came up. Construction ended. Thanks for your patience. And apparently, Ruth Graham said to Billy Graham, that's what I want on my tombstone. <laughs> I love that. Construction ended. Thanks for your patience. Like, that's sanctification, right? Like, it's actually not done until I'm dead. Right? We're always growing in Christ-like character. We're always being invited into a deeper experience of internal freedom. Every single time I'm, you know, clicking through online and I'm, like, starting to do that thing, like the grass is greener or whatever, opportunity, invitation to go, like, wow, where is it in me that I'm not yet maybe fully free? Where could I be more free? It's not, not wrong to go, but that you could be a person who, you could be anywhere. Because where you really live is the house of love. And it's always available to you wherever you are. No matter what you do, no matter who you know, no matter where you head, those are not the, it's not, that's not the story. That's not the story that you're living. And the last one is the power of God's vocation. What's that one? God through us. Okay, so that is when the spirit is living in you the power of God is working through you. So this is the power of God's vocation for you. It doesn't require an MBA. It doesn't require a PhD. It is simply allowing God's love to come into your life and then flow out of you wherever you are. 
there is a story I love, and it's a legendary story about a master teacher named Akiva. And he lived a couple thousand years ago. And one night, Akiva is going home in his village, and it's dark, and it's late, and he misses the turn to his home, and he stays on the main path. And he comes to this big, like, military fortress with this wall all around. And as he gets closer, he hears a soldier up on the wall say to him, Who are you and what are you doing here? And Akiva says, What? And he says, Who are you and what are you doing here? And Akiva looks up and he says, says to the guy, How much are they paying you? The guy's like, huh, what? How much are they paying you? And he says, 10 denaries a week. And the master teacher, Akiva, says, I will pay you double that if you come to my house and ask me those two questions every morning. Who are you? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Who are you? What are you doing here? Been lots of different ways we, we've had to answer that, right? Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The famous uh, confession what is the chief end of man? It's, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There, there was another um, Christian fiction uh, author who, who said it like this. You were sick. Now you're well. Now there's work to do. It's true. For every follower of God in the day of Jesus, I was sick. Now I'm well. Now there's work to do. In other words, like God in his infinite wisdom and infinite love for you does not say to you, to you, it does not come to you and just like redeem you, free you, and then dump you. God in his infinite wisdom and love for you comes to you, redeems you, and frees you and employs you. We love because God first loved us. There's a flow to this. There is to be a movement to this. The interior freedom doesn't come when we just stockpile and hoard. It comes when the flow is present. So God is with you. God is for you. God is in you. God desires to work through you. That is life in the house of love. That is interior freedom. And that can happen whether you are living in the slums of India or the urban neighborhoods of Denver or anywhere in between. What is your role? Like, what is my role? Our role is to remain, to remain in the house of love. Jesus said, remain in me. So, yeah, like maybe it is time for you to move. Maybe it is time for you to move more deeply 
into the house of love right where you are. To turn your frame from all of these things to how do I move in here to an ever-present reality of God is with you and for you and in you and wants to work through you. Let's pray together as we close. God, we thank you that from your perspective, the best place to live on all the earth is in love. We thank you that you're with us, that you're in us, that you're for us, that you desire to work through us. And we ask you, God, for a deeper desire today. Increase our vision for your kingdom come. May we want you and your kingdom come more than we want silver and gold, more than we want security and control, more than we want fame. No matter where we live, God, may we live deeply in the house of your love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.